Father, I confess that while you've done such a marvelous job doing amazing things in my lifetime, I find moments, minutes, hours, sometimes days that I forget to be amazed. It's not that you're any less amazing, it's just that I'm that blind. God, I'd ask that in these days of separation, in these days of confusion, in these days of frustration, in these days of sorrow, in these days of spring come summer, in these days of flowering and leaf unfolding, in these days of the reality of what it means to live in this moment at this time, we ask that to a person we would not cease to be amazed. Lord, I ask that you begin with me in Jesus' name. May I ask that you get your Bibles out and that you go to sort of the middle and then find Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. We're going to start here and then we're going to move into 1 Peter. And if you haven't quite caught it, I'm going to be bouncing back and forth out of 1 Peter. I think that it's an incredible encouragement to the church and it is so appropriate for these days. Uh, The letter written by Peter to the church is written to a church that's in experiencing tremendous trouble. And so there's a lot of things that he says in the letter that are really important for the church experiencing tremendous trouble to hear. And so it's, like all scripture, easily applicable, but uh, for this particular time that we are in, it's also very timely. And I, I, I think that it's important for us to to know that even things that have been passed down from generation, 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 and have been um, used in many different cultures and many different contexts over a a long period of time still has an impact for today, and that we can be confident in that. And such is just the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God that that wisdom taken out of one context in the Middle East and put into another context taken out of one time period nearly 2,000 years ago and put it into another context is just as much the wisdom of God as it's always been. So today, I would really just appreciate the, the privilege of being able to bounce a little bit back and forth and just show just this immensity of this timeless truth that God has given to us. So chapter 52 of Isaiah. I'm going to begin to read at the 13th verse. I'm going to continue on through the chapter break, which I encourage you to do on a regular basis as you read your Bibles. Ignore the verses, ignore the chapters. You might find stuff that you missed many times before just there in the open because the chapters and verses sometimes get in the way. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human, and from his appearance, no one could scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? 
My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's past to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared. He died without descendants. That his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when, we, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Now, this, these words were penned arguably hundreds of, year, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. And when exactly the year is, no one quite knows, but it was generations before Jesus was born. And there's a lot of discussion about what Isaiah understood. You know, he's penning these words, and they are prophecy for the generation in which they were given. So these things were not like put in a time capsule, and it marked when Jesus is born, you know, put it in the wall somewhere, and then being Jesus is born, somebody went out and got them. They literally were passed down from generation to generation. People read them. They tried to apply them to their current situation, and yet there was something always not finished here. In fact, in this particular passage, most of what was unfinished was unfinished for each generation, and they would pass it down to the next generation. And people who were given the responsibility of interpreting the word would be able to apply some portions of it, but still had to be honest, as we still have to be honest with God's word, to say, okay, this has not yet been done. This is still in process. This is still something that we expect, something that we anticipate. And so... This description of this servant of God who would be really forgettable, but yet would bear the sins of everyone who would be without sin, but yet be treated like a criminal, who would go through all sorts of terrors and yet not cry out, was like, hmm, 
I don't know what this is. This is going to happen. I want to read this passage because it makes the passage that we're going to be in in 1 Peter a little bit more understandable. So you can leave the, the middle portions of your Bible if you have a printed one and move to the back portions and find the letter called 1 Peter. Or if you are using your phone, you can just do it with a couple of fingertip presses and you'll be right there. 1 Peter, the first chapter, and the 10th verse. And for those that are paying attention, uh, yes, I did skip over a couple of verses. They're in reserve for a wonderful friend of mine and, and good Bible teacher to collect up sometime in the near future. So, incredible passage. I've not skipped over it. Uh, I've just been encouraged by somebody else saying, yes, I will be happy uh, to teach that when the time is right. 1 Peter, first chapter, 10th verse. This salvation, the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ, was something that even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's what? Suffering and his great glory afterward. And that's really why I wanted to read that, that passage from Isaiah. I know it was a lengthy passage. I hope you didn't get discouraged by its length or wander off and that you really absorb those words. It's coming. Isaiah, the, the writer, is penning these words, wondering what exactly is going to happen. How exactly is this going to come to pass? When is it going to be fulfilled? Verse 12, they were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Your different translations will have different ways of trying to get this verse into English, but this is a fair enough translation of Peter's words passed down to us. We as a culture, and in fact, I think we as human beings uh, are addicted to change, but we do not like change when we're not the one controlling the change. I've heard for many, many years, people hate change, and I found that that is exactly the not true. Not true, not true, not true. People hate change they don't control. If there is a tradition that has been handed down through the generations that I don't like, and I have the ability to control its change, I'm happy to do it as a human being. Doesn't matter what culture I'm in. Now, if somebody tries to take that very same tradition handed down through the generations and change it without my permission or influence, then that's the worst idea ever. And that's just the way we are. And you can, you can do your business environment, your school environment, your sports team environment. It doesn't matter what environment it is. If you're dealing with change that somebody else has made without your input or influence, likelihood of you not enjoying it is pretty high. However, if change isn't about us and change is about things that are far beyond us, and that we really trust in the one who's making those changes, 
then we kind of switch to the other side. And we're quite happy about it. I want to give you a kind of a silly example and one that's in the big picture kind of irrelevant. It was a change from analog to digital television. Do you remember this? I mean, there was all sorts of brouhaha about how it was going to disenfranchise entire parts of the planet and how there would be all of a sudden people that would not have access to television. And it was a change in just the format in how television was being distributed to the masses. It went from one kind of transmission cycle to a different kind of transmission cycle. And so those that were making the change were very wise. They started lauding the benefits of the change. You'll get more. You'll get higher quality. you do this. And then they, very soon people started experiencing what digital television looked like. And then all of a sudden there's this enormous groundswell of people throwing away their analog TVs and getting these massive and more massive and more massive and more massive digital televisions and being able to enjoy not just two, four, six, ten, twelve, and 13 occasionally, which is what I grew up with, still remember to this day, but now hundreds of channels of all sorts of different kind of content, some of it quite educational and some of it quite wicked, but it's all there. And now that is welcomed and we flip between these options that we have with great joy, changing, 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 changing. Why? Because not that any of us who are not engineers understand the lick about the difference between analog and digital. We just know that we're amazed by the spectacular picture that we get to see and all of the choices that we get to make. I believe that we as followers of Jesus Christ can trust God in even better measure than we trusted the people who made the switch from digital or from analog to digital. I think we can do that. I think that we can honestly say, because God has a pretty good track record over the thousands of years of human existence, that he is indeed very much concerned with our welfare, and that he is indeed very much concerned that the short period of time that we spend on earth is done in such a way to have an eternal blessing that he wants to walk us through and to experience with us and that we can really trust that in the experiences that we have no matter how difficult it is that he will be with us and that he will see us through that we can actually welcome change that he is orchestrating and so we have a choice to make we can either be the group of people who sits back and tells God, we don't think you know what you're doing. And we're very much against it. Because you did not consult us about the changes that you're making on this planet, in this culture, in my life. And because I was not consulted about it, and because I was not involved in the decision-making process, I'm out. I'm not going to do it. Unless you make me, and you're going to have to exercise your godness in order to do that. Or... We can be like the masses who, convinced that digital is definitely better, can run out and with joy participate in that change. And I am encouraging, pleading, begging, if you will, that we be the second group.
that we trust God to say, God, you're allowing these things to happen in our world that we don't understand and that we can't control and quite frankly scares some of us to absolute distraction. But we know you got it. And so we're going to welcome this change. However it looks, however it turns out, how much it costs, we're going to welcome it because we know you are prepared for everything that we're experiencing. So I want to share with you some applications from this passage. The first application, I hope, has already been introduced and with God's grace, maybe even understood. And that is that really 2020 is seeing in stereo. Why do we say hindsight is 2020? The idea is perfection. You know, that, that I, I have clarity because I've already experienced something so I can look back on it and I, I see it for exactly what it is. Now, we have this saying in our culture, but we know it's not exactly 100% true. If you ever have a memory of something and you're like in a family environment and you want to talk about that memory, somebody's going to tell you that some part of your memory is not exactly right. And so then you can start all sorts of family dialogue going on and sometimes some out and out fights talking about something that should be perfectly clear because it happened in the past and we see everything in the past with clarity. We know it's not true. But it's, it's a nice encouragement to know that when we do experience something that we can learn from it. Well, this is 2020, and there's all sorts of fun stuff that we can have with this year and that we're going to have with this year, um, completely unrelated. I was, I'm noticing that, that masks are being hung from the car, you know, the rear view mirrors. I was just driving yesterday. I was thinking, well, in the 1970s, it was fuzzy dice. Um, in the 1980s, it was garters and crucifixes and things like that and I was just kind of going through the decades of what different people <laughs> hang on their rearview mirrors it's not it has nothing to do with the message but it just struck me um, that that you know as we think about our place in history you we've got this challenge of kind of putting everything together what does it mean and this passage is really really encouraging to me because it doesn't say hindsight is Clear, clear and completely in focus, but it does say that in God's economy, what's happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future, that colon in the middle is completely controlled by him and that we can literally see in stereo. So well, what does that mean? That means that the past and the future can be speaking to us simultaneously, not because we understand the entirety of the, of the past or that we even know what's going to happen in the future, but because we know that the one who caused the past to get us to where we're at and who controls the future and is working even now to see that thing accomplished that he knows about is going to come to be. So we who are in this middle can enjoy the fullness of the sound. That those that have come before us are speaking and that those that things that we can't even begin to anticipate have already been prepared for by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so in this moment, in this time, whatever we're experiencing, whether it be great joy or great sorrow or great confidence or great anxiety, that we can be confident 
that in 2020 that we can see in stereo because we have the past to inform us and we know who holds the future and so we can just enjoy the sound of his grace to us in this moment in this time and this is really what peter was speaking of when he speaks to this process of those that were in the process of speaking for god prophesying but yet not understanding all of what that was they were speaking about, but understanding that the Spirit of Christ was revealing these things and that he would cause what was yet to come to come. And then it would be good because it's God. And, and so 10 and 11 really give us this testimony of God working with his people in this way, of this stereo kind of connection. We have this past. It's informing us. We know who controls the future and is working. And we're just anxiously awaiting what our part would be. And I think that that is part of the great encouragement of this time. We don't know how all this virus stuff is going to work out. We know that we've got lots of things that we've learned from the past. But we, where we're at right now, not knowing all the future and not really comprehending everything that's in the past we know that god is working right now and if we trust him that the future is in his hands and the present is where we're speaking just like those i mean can you imagine writing this these words down hundreds of years before jesus was born and thinking this is just weird why would god have somebody that's going to be you know rescuing everybody being ugly i mean it's just who writes that kind of stuff? And that the one who's going to be blameless is the one that's going to be treated like a criminal. I mean, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense outside of trusting that God would make it sensible at the right time. In this passage that we read from Isaiah, we saw that there were sufferings that we're seeking glory. That is also reflected in verse 12 of this passage that we read in 1 Peter. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It's so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. In chapter 52 and 53 of Isaiah, there's just one suffering after the other, after the other, after the other that are placed on this servant. That the prophet did not even understand who it was or how it was going to be. But all of that had a point. And at the end, that suffering servant would be elevated by God and would be given great honor. Another one of the letter writers to the church says that Jesus has been seated at the right of hand of God and that every person, in fact, every creature above the earth, on the earth, below the earth, will bow their knee and confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of that glory came through suffering. And this is also something that, that we know in, in, in our time. If you want to be an elite athlete, you have to suffer training there are people that are enormously physically gifted and and are very tall very strong very fast but it doesn't matter how gifted they are they have to go through the process of training their bodies to do 
the best. And that causes suffering. Sometimes it's minimal suffering. Sometimes it's excruciating suffering. I remember when I was a young man watching the Los Angeles Dodgers play. My dad was a fan of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And there was a pitcher by the name of Oral Hershiser. And he was a very thin guy. We were watching a baseball game. And we, my dad and I were watching it on television. And, and I, I'll never forget it because it just totally grossed me out. He threw a pitch, and as he was throwing the pitch, his arm broke. And you could see it on television. And it was gruesome. I mean, it was before they could do all the delay and stuff. I mean, and it was obvious that that motion broke his arm. That's been decades ago. I remember it to this day. That's just how gruesome that was. But this pitcher worked hard, suffered greatly, and threw the ball again. For the glory of a game. How much more so those of us who have the glory of what we talked about last week in Matthew 25 of standing before the God of the universe, being separated out as sheep, which is an honor in and of itself, and then being praised in front of all the creatures of the omniverse that we did the things that we needed to do to reflect the power of Christ, whether it be feeding somebody that was hungry or giving them something to drink, clothing them, visiting them in prison, caring for them when they were sick. These things that are very mundane, very ordinary, that aren't put in the annals of religiosity, but that the king says, well done, come into the joy of your Lord. How much more so should we, as followers of Christ, be willing to Bear whatever sufferings that we have to bear, whatever they may be, for the sake of that glory. Following the example of the one who bore my sin and yours for the sake of the glory of adopting you and me into his family. There's another point I want to make from this passage in It is also fairly straightforward and something that we're all quite familiar with. Our present is always revolutionizing our future. What we do now, the things that we choose to do, the places that we go, the interactions that we have revolutionizes our future. And sometimes it revolutionizes it for the good and sometimes for evil. And sometimes we think that we're doing good and it doesn't turn out that way, but we are participating in that revolution of the future. This passage that Peter writes to a church in distress is encouraging to this point. This good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This news is the now news. Your life in Christ is alive. Your sin debt has been erased. God is doing this right now. And because he's doing this, he's making you part of this present that is going to be part of this work that happens in the future that we cannot understand, not even fully see. And even the angels are like, I wonder how God's going to mark this out. But we know that that we're part of this this process of what God is doing, and it's incredible. It's amazing. 
And so we can rest in the responsibility and in the joy of sharing this good news as often and as in many places as we possibly can and of living out this good news as much as possible and as in many places as we can. Because that is how God is revolutionizing the future. And we know that whatever happens, whether it be great explosion of joy and victory worldwide or great suffering and troubles worldwide or something in between or a mixture of both, that he is doing it and he's managing it and he's in control. And in the end, it will be good. You may say, well, that's a very Pollyanna view of things, a very unrealistic view of things. And I would say, in return, pish posh. We live, we survive on hope. Period. And one of the things that I, I find to be extraordinary as, as a person who's place faith in Jesus Christ, somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, who was agreeably crucified by a governmental agency at the encouragement of the rabble, who was buried, and who I believe rose again and is now ruling in the omniverse, but some people see as absolute insanity and silliness beyond all silliness. That's what I believe. I'm astonished by those who work through this world with philosophy of it is what it is. That blows me away. Because A, it's not true. Nothing is anything at any particular time. It's always changing, period. Air is coming in and out. Viruses are coming and going and mutating and medicines are being administrated and some work and some don't. The same medicine in two different people may have completely different responses. We have every part of our existence testifying against the saying that it is what it is. When we really mean, I just can't do anything about it. But that's not as much fun to say. You, know, you say something, you say, but I can't do anything about it. Then that's kind of a confession that we're not in control. And we like to be in control. And so we just say something else. We say it is what it is. And because then we don't have to confess that we can't do anything about it or that we don't want to do anything about it, we just kind of throw that out there. And I find that amazing. I also find it amazing that, that, that people who will tell you in one breath that there is no God, and if there is, they would say, I say, no, 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 you can't have both. You know, if there's no God, then okay. Then whatever happens to you is random, and you have no right to be angry about it any more than you have any right to be happy about it. Because it's just the things that go on and things are changing and you either are pleasured by it or you're pained by it, but it's meaningless. And we always feel, try to put meaning into stuff and then say, I don't believe in God, but if there is a God, no, no, no. Okay, well, you want to talk about the other side of that? There is a God. Okay, and you're angry at a neighbor. Just met the neighbor. The neighbor found out at the time I was a pastor of a local congregation, and he said, I've got a question for you. And I know that whenever you meet somebody and they find out that you're a pastor and they say, I've got a question for you, it's, it's not going to be an easy one. It's going to be a tough one. And I'll never forget, I remember exactly where I was standing. I remember exactly where he was standing. It was before social distancing, but we were just a little bit apart. 
I can, I can point you to the spot. I mean, it, it really, it, I knew it was coming, and it, and it certainly came. And, and, and he looked me straight in the face, and it, immediate tear, he said, I had a little boy playing in the front yard of my home behind a fence, and somebody ran a stop sign and knocked another car through the fence and killed my little boy. Why did God do that to me? It's like, nice meeting you. Let's not be here again now. He believed in a God. He wanted to have God answer why his boy died. And he wanted me to make sense for him of what seemed to be an absolutely senseless and random chance thing. How many times did somebody run that stop sign? What are the physics of the impact that would cause the car to go careening through a fence and not be stopped by the fence, but make it further. Why wasn't his boy eight feet one side and could have been a near miss and instead it was a dead hit? Why couldn't the child have just been severely injured or maybe even minorly injured or maybe just bumped a little bit? I mean, all of these questions are legitimate questions that people have and they want some sort of an answer to. And if they feel like they can't get a satisfactory answer to it, then the God that they believe in becomes a God that they hate or are angry with. In fact, it's been my experience that while I have met people who genuinely believe that there is no God and there's not even a discussion about God because it, you know, why would you talk about leprechauns and fairies and God? They don't exist. So it's kind of pointless conversation, so don't talk to me about it. I've met a few of them. What I mostly find People who call themselves atheists are just angry. That's the A, theists. God has somehow failed them. God has somehow disappointed them. Something has happened in life that they're angry about, and so God is the accountable one. And the honest response that every person of faith needs to be able to have is simply this we live in a world that is fallen that is broken where evil things happen we as human beings as hard as it is to know and even harder it is to confess introduced all of this into the world we did it we did it and we continue to do it and then this sin that we introduced to this world and that we propagate in this world has terrible, terrible consequences. Sometimes those consequences go all the way to the inexplicable death of a 10-year-old boy playing in his front yard, fenced and secure. If that's all there was to say about it, God would be somebody worthy of being angry at indeed. But here is the truth. All of those things, those things that I really need to answer this text right now, and so I'm going to cause a chain reaction where four people are going to die or ten people are going to die, or I'm going to cause something to where a business is going to go under, which I've seen that happen in the last couple of years, or I'm going to institute this lie that is going to end up being 
bigger and bigger and bigger and it's going to destroy relationships and cause distance between people. All of the ugliness of this world, all of it, every single bit, historic, present, and future, all of it was placed on this one that is described so eloquently in Isaiah 52 and 53 and that the absolute massive nature of that burden put the Holy One of God in the grave. Period. All of it. There. And there, life and rightness was born all over again. And that grave did not release Jesus to this life of carefree existence? None whatsoever. He's got to deal with us, who are his children. And I have kids, and I have shook my head about my kids. I beamed with glory and proudness in them, and I have said, oh, Lord, I'm not related, am I? And I know that God has that experience with his kids, with me, continuously. And more of the, I have not adopted this kid. Did I? Yes, I did. Wow. Far more, far more than beaming with joy and pride from a human standpoint anyway. No, Jesus committed himself to working with beat up, broken, sinful, willful, rebellious, people all over again and to change them from the inside out by being the center of their hearts by promising them an inheritance that cannot be undone by their own stupidity and sinfulness and to seeing them through until we get to see him face to face and even more than that of enduring the things that we endure with us. And I didn't get to give this whole message to my neighbor. Um, it would have been imprudent to do so. But I did give him this part of the message. Because this is the point, And it is the worthy point. Jesus endured with you every caught breath that you had when you thought of your little boy. Every worried moment that you had rushing to the hospital. Every tear streamed down the face of your face. The face of your wife's face. The face of his friend's faces. The face of your relatives. Because of this tragic event he caught in his bottle. Every unkind word, every angry moment he felt for the sake of letting you know I'm here and I love you and here is hope that this is not the end. That while this pain is real and while it makes your life seem like it is a distant, dark tunnel. 
He will see you through it. Experiencing all of these things alongside of you. And in the end, will welcome you into a place where little boys will never, ever, ever be run over in their front yard. I remember sharing that with him and seeing over his face just that glimmer of maybe this is true to be replaced by the cloud of his grief once again. And just not being able to accept that that great of a gift was worthy of laying down the tremendous cost of that child. I know that there are those that are listening that may have had equally troubling times or maybe even more so. But I can also testify to this. The most joyous people that I've ever met in my entire life are people who have lost children and trusted Jesus through it. So much so. I asked one who lost two children. Both Separate times, incredibly unbelievable circumstances. I mean, if you're going to say, what's the statistical probability of one family losing two children in completely separate events in this manner? I mean, the lottery surely has to be a far better bet than this happening. And they just were full of joy all the time. And I, was, I asked them, I said, how can you be this way? You know, I get grumpy when I don't have enough time, money to pay the bills, I get grumpy when my wife is cross with me. I get grumpy when my kids don't do what I asked them to do. How can you have lost not one but two precious children to completely crazy events and be so joyful? And I'll never forget the answer immediately given. I know that where I'm at right now pales in comparison to where I'll be with Jesus. And that hope is enough for me in this moment. And so there was great joy. I was like, oh my goodness. I got to get some of that. And I've been working on it ever since and will continue to work on it until I get to see him face to face. Our hope is that strong. So how does that apply to this moment that we're in right now? It's pretty straightforward, folks. Whether you need to stay at home for whatever reason or you're out and about for whatever reason, whether you think the virus thing is a bunch of nonsense or you think that it's the most dangerous thing that we've ever experienced as human beings, it, it matters not. We're going to have lots of different opinions about it. And, and, and do you want, in the big scheme of things, it's okay. It's really all right. It's, it's, it's not going to be the end of things because of the hope that we have. Because even if our lives are forfeit and our bodies no longer work in Christ, that is not the end. It is the beginning of forever. And that's where we're at. we got to remember that. That's where we're at. And that's why people who are Christians say, you know, it's better than the alternative when they're talking about how you are. And I say, no, the alternative is far, far better. Being with Jesus is the best. And if you're a Christian, you should know this. And shame on you for saying that. You know, it's not... You, our life is significant here because we have this opportunity to participate in what God is doing at this time, even this time of this virus stuff. And that is, that is important because he says it is. 
But the alternative is incredible. It is the best place. It's not a better one. It is the best place. It is with him. And that's our hope. And that's what Peter was talking to a church that was experiencing incredible persecution, incredible troubles, loss of jobs, loss of life, viruses, all sorts of things. This church knew what it was about. And yet Peter writes to this church and he says, I know the one that I saw suffer all things that I denied across the garden and that he and I met and eye to eye and I knew that he knew that I had blown it big time that the one whose body I went to look for in the grave and was gone the one who said do you love me do you love me do you love me and then feed told me to feed my sheep this one is worthy of that hope and that's where my hope's placed and that's where your hope should be placed as well and so I'm gonna encourage you where you're at separated to ask the Lord, what does this hope do for me right now? How am I going to respond to it? And it's going to be different. And it's not my place or position to say yours is a good thing or a bad thing. As long as it's not against Scripture, we're just to learn to love each other. And so that's where we need to be. As far as a congregation is concerned, I've been asked and, and quite frankly, I'm behind in, in responding appropriately. You know, when are we going to get together as a congregation again? I'm not really quite sure. I want to make sure that uh, as far as I can do, that when we do get together as a congregation, we get together in a way that Jesus is the point and not how can we keep each other from getting the virus as a point. Now, I don't want to wipe away that there's a virus and it's very bad. And it's a terrible virus or behave in any way poorly with that. But that shouldn't be the point. God's people getting together are for encouraging one another to love and good deeds. It says that in the scripture. And to give honor and praise to God. It says that in scripture too. And folks, we got to realize that this is not the first time that it's been dangerous to be together. It's not. And it won't be the last time. Sometimes getting together, even right now, is are we going to get arrested and hauled off to jail and never seen again? That's happening in this world right now. And yet, God's people get together, not so that they can be at mutual risk of getting arrested and never being seen again, but so that they could divorce and honor to God and encourage one another to love and good deeds. So that's no more complicated than that. So that's what we're, we're trying to say. How can we create in a context where that's the point? Understanding all the things that we need to do with social distancing and cleanliness and sanitation, all those kinds of things, but how can we do that in a way that says Jesus is the point? And I'm going to suggest to you we're listening that you're part of that conversation that God wants you to move to be to do because of the hope that rests in you because he is fully prepared for the change that we're enduring father I thank you for the privilege of being able to share this message father I thank you for the things that you did in the past that those that were enduring it didn't understand, but that you knew exactly how it would turn out because you hold our future. God, I thank you that you are indeed in control right now and that we have an opportunity to respond to you. And Father, I'd ask that we would do so willingly. I would do so willingly. God, I pray for those that are still struggling with whether or not that they can trust you and whether or not you're worthy of 
the surrender of control of life and the receipt of forgiveness of sin. God just asked that those would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not because of any words that I could say or any proofs that I could give, but because of the absolute powerful presence of your living spirit that has convicted and moved so many in the past and is convicting and moving so many right now that you would grip their hearts and that you would welcome them into your family right now. Father, as we respond in song, God, I'd ask that you move in our hearts and that we would leave this virtual gathering changed. And as you would honor my prayer that something extraordinary would happen today and it would be all you and that we'd be amazed by you once again as we sang just a few minutes ago. In Jesus' name, amen.